Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Emily Haynes from Metric, and you are listening to the story behind the song on Consequence. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the story behind the song, the Consequence Podcast Network series, where I interview the artists behind some of the most iconic, memorable, and lasting songs of the past few decades. I'm your host, Peter Chadi of Creative Media, and each month I dive deep into two songs with my guests. In this episode, I speak with Emily Haynes, lead singer and songwriter of the shape-shifting band Metric. Metric has released eight studio albums with a sound that is difficult intentionally to pigeonhole. Part indie rock meets pop punk meets dance meets electronic. The point is that it works. And their latest album, Formentera, is no exception. So take a listen as we dive deep into this latest revealing story behind the song episode with the deeply thoughtful, candid, authentic, and energetic voice of metric, Emily Haynes. Emily, great to see you. Great to see you. Where are you today? I am in a rural hamlet. Intriguing. Yes, we both staged our settings quite well. I like to see the guitars there. Yes. That's Jack Teagarden, if you're curious who the portrait is there. Okay. Big inspiration. So today we're going to be digging, like we always do on the Story Behind song, into two different tracks and to really go deep about the journey, the musical journey behind them. And so, as always, I always choose one of the artist's most iconic song, and I chose Help, I'm Alive. And then typically we go for one of the most recent songs, and you just released a great album called Formentera, and Doom Scroller is the, is the initial track that runs over 10 minutes long, and a very different kind of vibe for Metric, because you're a band that I know pretty well and have followed the journey over the years. So... It'll be really interesting to dig into that. Let's do it. Metric has, I think you started in about 1998. You actually formed the band in the very late 90s, have eight studio albums. The first studio album was actually released several years after it was recorded. Um, you've toured with the Stones. I'm going to ask you about that critically acclaimed band, including the latest album that's gotten excellent reviews. Amazing. Memories. Love it. Emily, I want to understand a little bit about your musical journey and just take me back to your childhood and how you got into music in the first place. I was a musical kid and fortunate enough to have a family that supported that endeavor. Um, I did realize early that I could get out of doing the dishes if I was playing the piano. Um, and I do think that went in on a deep level and I'm still trying to get out of certain aspects of adulthood and mundane existence be, because it feels like I'm writing, you know, you can't interrupt that process. Right. Um, but so, you know, my parents, uh, my father's passed away. Sadly, he was a poet, um, part of the Greenwich village scene and did interesting work as a lyricist with Carla Blay and others, um, my mother's a painter and they were both teachers. My mother's still alive. They had my brother in New York. They had my sister in New Mexico and they had me in New Delhi. So a great love affair. Um, they worked for the international school of both American and came to Canada in the 1970s. How much time did you spend in New Delhi? 
the family was there for about six years. My brother and sister are significantly older than me. I, you know, planned me 10 years later. So I don't actually remember it. We came when, to Canada when I was just under three. And when did you first start picking up an instrument, writing songs? Really young. Yeah. Yeah. Like I remember being, you know, in kindergarten, I remember the relationship I had with the piano feeling as I still have to this day, the sense that it's kind of like, you know, almost like a portal and I would just sort of approach it with awe. And I still have that sensation of, you know, it's extraordinary when you consider the number of compositions that continue to be made with the same 88 keys, you know, without even getting into other cultures that have quarter tones. And that would be a whole other conversation. Like your homeland in India. Exactly. I, exactly. Fascinating musical uh, history there. But uh, yeah, I, I feel like from a very young age, I started writing and um, got early tips from my dad. One thing that was amazing that he said to me was just to record everything. And he and my, you know, we didn't have cash it was, you know, my parents were teachers, lived in a small town, but there always seemed to be a way to get me what I needed, you know, reel to reel recordings. My brother chipped in and got me a four track recorder, cassette recorder, Tascam, basic rudimentary stuff. But that, that idea that my father planted of like, just kind of catching yourself before you are trying to control your own thinking or make it make sense that the, that the seeds of, of the most important and good work that you'll do are in that sort of gibberish stage. And I have found that to be true in my writing where I I go back and it's almost like a reveal. Um, When I listen, it seems like it's nothing, but I can actually pull out narrative themes. It's, it's a strange process, but it's, it works. That's, that's fascinating, especially because the technology was so different. Yeah. I haven't really evolved past that in terms of writing. I don't do anything fancy. I just kind of, if I feel this pull to the piano, I just kind of like press record on something and it's not, uh, it's not high tech. I leave that to the, the, uh, exquisite ears of James Shaw. So that's his job. <laughs> when did you first feel comfortable singing on stage? You know, I was really determined that I was going to be a singer. I, you know, I was getting my dad to like send cassettes of me singing to like Quincy Jones. Um, cause I was sure he would want to sign me when I was five. Uh, you know, but singing at the um, the uh, high school, like the school that I was at was like kindergarten through eighth grade. And at the talent show, when I was in kindergarten, I was like, I'm going to rock this. I'm going to do Somewhere Over the Rainbow, acapella. And I remember this vividly, like teachers and people who cared about me saying like, maybe do you want some accompaniment or do you want? And I was like, no, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this. And um, of course you've got like, the cool kids with their cover bands, you know, playing Def Leppard or whatever. Uh, and I got up there and totally froze and panicked. And everyone, like the memory is like a vivid kind of cartoon, you know, of like everyone like, like pointing and laughing. And my mom said, I was like, I'll never sing again. But then I was like right back at it. So all that to say, I actually have had stage fright um, forever and help I'm alive. It's interesting that that's the song you want to talk about because it was my first experience of like the concept of creating a song with a functionality of armor and actually being the way for me to handle those feelings was to actually directly address them in the song as opposed to trying to hide what I was feeling behind a song. Um, and it obviously resonated with people who everyone has those. It doesn't, you don't have to get on stage to be afraid. That's for sure. Life is terrifying. So, <laughs> Well, and that gets into doom scroller too. But I was going to ask you about that with Help, I'm Alive. Because, and when did you first start writing songs and feel comfortable writing songs? Really early. Like I was okay. like, yeah, like as a kid, that was just kind of what I was doing. And I think that's common for a lot of you know, perhaps your daughter, like kids are always kind of right coming up with stuff. And it was very, I don't think it was any good or anything, but it was definitely like the place that I went. And then yeah. from, for as long as I can remember, that was just my place. You know, I need a piano on every floor and within like arm's reach at all times. Let's hear about how you met James and you started a band called Mainstream, which was just the two of you. So take me through the evolution into metric. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so Jimmy went to Juilliard for trumpet. He was this like child prodigy kid. And um, he went to Curtis before that and everything. He left home at like 15 and was living alone in the States. And he came back uh, to Toronto 
And it's actually very funny that it's the, the place that we met is this, the most classic Toronto establishment. It's a place called the Horseshoe Tavern. Um, and it, it only gets better with time to me that this, like, the longer that we all stay together and this turns out to be the actual story of my life, the more hilarious I find it that we met at the Horseshoe Tavern. But we had a friend in common, this guy, Joe Phillips, amazing musician, um, who invited us both to this gig. And we we met there, leaned on the pool table and basically just made a plan to we were like, this is what's wrong with the Canadian music industry. Um, you know, there's the major labels are completely out to lunch. This genre of music needs to go away. It was like some sort of bad sort of white funk thing that was a problem at the time in Toronto. We were like, there need to be new labels. There need to be all these things. And let's go do it. We're moving to New York. And we're single-handedly going to save save the Canadian music industry. I love that. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I think we've actually done our share. You've done a great job. At least you know, showing people that there are other ways that you can do things, you know, Completely. no love lost for the major label system for some people, but there need to be alternatives. Um, but so yeah, we moved to New York and then, you know, we're, it was really hard, the classic thing of trying to just get by and got this loft in Williamsburg, um, yeah, which Jim was fully Jimmy's brain, you know, driving around the, the owner of, it's not a loft. I mean, it's like, it's a garage in, in, uh, on Metropolitan between Bedford and Driggs under a trucking company, but he gets the lease on this place. All these different um, members of f- future bands ended up living there. Members of the AES, TV on the radio, liars, stars, um, et cetera, turned out to be quite the hub. Um, and we ended up getting a, a, a kind of a cold call from a manager in England saying, come to London. Oh my God, your demos are so amazing. Um, come to London, quit your jobs. I'm getting you a publishing deal. I'm getting you a record deal. You're going to be huge stars. Don't even play a, show, a single show. The buzz is like so deafening. We're like, whoa. So quit my job. You know, the whole, everyone, I remember leaving the loft and everyone's like, good job. You know, like <laughs> Xander's like, come on, you can do yeah, it. That's graduation. Totally. Luckily we didn't burn any bridges because we were back very quickly. We did sign a publishing deal, which was in fact a good deal, luckily, but it, the major label, situation just fell apart. Like, um, we were about to sign with, uh, Andy Ross and food records, which was blur. We were so happy. We found our people. We met Graham Coxon. We went to the dog races. We were like hanging out at the good mixer. It was just legend, amazing band. Um, and poor Andy Ross went in, you know, to his parent company, EMI and said, okay, I found this new act. I want to sign them. And they said, not only are you not signing them, we're actually cutting off all your funding for food records. So that was kind of the beginning of the journey for Jimmy and I with labels and being shelved and those kinds of unfortunate events. But so we moved back to New York. I got my job back, no questions asked. And we were like, never again with the demos. We got to put a band together. We did a deal with this label uh, for that, what became Grow Up and Blow Away. And then he shelved it. And that just sort of solidified our concept, you know, and being in the environment of the Strokes and, you know, White Stripes, all these bands was such a moment. It was so cool. People, rem- you know, remembering that being a band is amazing. And we just were like, forget that record. We're starting from scratch, which is why our first album is Old World Underground. How does it happen that a loft, you have all these, you have the two of you, but you have all these future great band members that happened to be in the same loft. That doesn't just happen. It was completely circumstance. The place was terrible. There was like two bathrooms, shared kitchen, and hilariously L-shaped right on the L train. And, you know, Jimmy got the lease and was like, okay, we got to figure out how to get people in here. He put up at that time, which I know is hard for so many people to grasp, but we did communicate without our phones and the internet. So he would have put up a poster like at the El Cafe or something, right? Yeah. And with the phone numbers on the bottom and been like, call if you want to move into this place. And one of the first people to come was um, Nick Zinner. Um, and then it just kind of filled up from there. And then people met and it just ended up being that, that, was, that was that moment, you know? What a cool vibe. Yeah. So did you all jam together? Hell no. Okay. All right. No, everyone, you know, it was definitely the atmosphere was like, this is bad and we've all got to get out of this. You know, 9-11 happened. Like it it was a hard, it wasn't a like hippie dippy situation. It was way more punk rock than that and way more like gritty and 
you know, the, the heating for the place was, there were these like spigots on the outside of the building. And there was no way inside the building of knowing how much oil there was that was heated by oil. But there were no thermostats. There was no no way to see like, oh, you're running out or you're running low or whatever. So we would just have to wait. And then we'd be like, the heat's out, obviously, in the middle of February. Call the company. They'd drive this huge truck and like throw a bunch into one spigot outside for the back and throw a bunch more into the other spigot and be like, you owe us this amount of money. And Jimmy would have to go and knock on everyone's door and be like, do you have like 600 bucks? Like it was so, so hard. And um, everyone I think was motivated to succeed in their, you know, chosen profession by how crappy that loft was. That's rock and roll. Totally. It helps you really appreciate all the things that change in your life. So your first album is blow. It was grow up and blow away, and you shelved that for several years. We didn't shelve it. We did a deal, and the guy was like, "You know what? We did everything. The record was completely finished, mixed, yeah. mastered, artwork, everything." He was like, "You know what? I don't feel like putting it out." Okay, which was basically everything we'd been working toward. All the London, all everything was culminating in that, and then it was like, "Poof! You have no music. You can't." do anything. So that's when we started our own kind of pre iTunes iTunes, where we started something where we were just, you know, putting these like CDRs together, being like, Hey, check this out. And and we like, email us, we'll send you the songs that you want to hear. And that's how Jules, our drummer actually found us because Beacon's Closet in Brooklyn um, was owned by um, the future drummer of Interpol, Sam, his wife. Ah. So he was working there. And they had a little record section and we, I remember going in and being like, Sam, can you put our stupid CDR in your CD section? He's like, sure, man, don't worry about it. And then his, his wife uh, was best friends with Jules's girlfriend. So that's how Jules found Grow Up and Blow Away, the songs that were Grow Up and Blow Away that we were just circulating on our own because this label was not putting it out. It's amazing how life works because <laughs> it is. if that album wasn't shelved by that label, then you probably wouldn't have met your future drummer in your band. And God knows what would have happened. Your journey just would have been a different journey. So it's amazing how it all works out. It's interesting you say that because it's, it's such a, dis a crucial distinction to make between like glossing over things or like silver lining thinking or revisionist stuff, right? Like yeah. I like being honest and real about it. when things suck, they suck. But of late, I've been having that same exact sort of revelation because so many people have been asking about the history of the band and we're coming up on 20 years yeah. anniversary of Old World. And I feel so the same way. And I'm trying to remember that with setbacks in the present that you just you you really shouldn't be too quick to decide that something is necessarily bad, because in that case, to me, Old World is 100 percent our first album. That's totally correct. I love that we later bought back grow up and blow away. And it's the way it sits in the catalog, you get this sort of insight into the origins of me and Jimmy writing, as opposed to that being our first statement, because it's not very developed. It's like, you know, bedroom electronica. So yeah, to your point, I think about that, like philosophically in the present, just not to be so sure that something's bad. I mean, we were devastated when that was shelved. Of course. But as it turns out, it, it was for the best. It's pretty amazing how things is. work out that way. <laughs> So we're going to dig right into your first song, Help I'm Alive, in Story Behind the Song. But we're going to take a quick little break, and then we'll be right back with Emily Haynes of Metric. Okay, we are back with Emily Haynes of Metric. Let's get into Help I'm Alive, which was really, it seems to me, your breakout song, at least in the United States, at that time, from your fourth album, um, Fantasies. And help me understand the whole journey of that song and where your headspace was when you were writing it. Things were pretty dire. It was definitely like a really hard time in the band. We had made Live It Out and things had imploded. We had been touring constantly. You know, I, I really... I really wasn't well. Um, and it was a really rough time personally. Things were just kind of fragmented and there was really the sense that maybe we weren't going to continue. 
and I was in London and I was staying at this house that was under construction, um, which ended up being such a huge metaphor for that relationship because it was like, I wanted it to work. So I was just kind of camped out there by myself, but it was just plastic and it was not a functional space, but I was like, I'm going to make this work. And it was really lonely and really bad. And I remembered much as I've done since I was a kid, just having that phrase, I didn't have a piano or anything, but recording into my phone, you know, help I'm alive, my heart keeps beating like a hammer, that part. That just came to you in a moment of inspiration? I mean, a moment of more desperation, but yeah, like I was just completely alone in a very isolated place. And it's certainly a technique that I've used throughout my life of like self-soothing, I think, since as a kid. So I was just like kind of coping, right? Um, Yeah. And, but it's, it's, was without the piano or anything, but I could hear, I felt like I could hear what that was going to be. And then I embarked on this kind of like, you know, put your finger on the map, go anywhere journey um, to Buenos Aires, where I was just like looking for a place with a piano. I needed to disappear. And that's where I chose because I found a place with a piano. And, and you went on your own. Yes. Yeah. There, I ended up developing the song and did a lot of the writing that would end up on fantasies when I did come back. But it was really slow. It was one of the material we had. It was not a favorite piece for anyone. Hmm. Um, And then I ended up, once I was back writing the guitar part separately, being like, it needs this other section. If we're still alive, my regrets are few. Like I was just like, this needs to be balanced. Then we recorded it properly. It was with everything else. And it was still like, this isn't hitting. And I had a revelation that it needed to be sped up, which has happened a few times in the band where it's a big game changer, the tempo thing, where you can't imagine it, but it's like, this is changes everything. Um, and it was still not what we didn't consider it the strongest song on the record or anything. And in fact, it was like leaked and we were like, oh, well, so I think we released it. It was in that time when things leaked, which I separate conversation, but it's funny how that's just not a thing anymore. Um, (laughs) and then people just started playing it. Like we didn't in Australia and in the U S I think there was a station in Seattle. The end, I think was one of the first people were just like, it was the most natural and beautiful thing and to this day that song is so such a reminder of that the tent like the fragility and the tenderness and the vulnerability of where those things spring from from and being able to construct something around it and connect with people i know it's helped a lot of people that song serendipity because you didn't plan as a band to release that as one, as the first single from the album it just happened Yeah, we weren't like, here's our move. No, no, it was the opposite. We were like, that's the least important song. And then it's the breakout song, at least here in the United States. So you you had already been winning a number of awards back at the Juno Awards in Canada. No, because that was on that record that that we did. So we weren't, it was the same thing here. Like it just kind of, that record kind of changed everything. I think also because people were, I mean, we've been dismissed so many times, but um, that's just part of the deal. But uh, for us, at least. But after, the, you know, the gap after Live It Out and, you know, that record yeah. was really heavy rock. We're doing so much touring, everything. I think people knew there was internal problems and they were like, those guys are not coming back. And then we were like, yes, we are. Yeah, I love it. Surprised <laughs> ourselves. By the way, the album before is a great album, too. Thank you. The record. Absolutely. So you already touched upon this a little bit that it was about your headspace and dealing with your stage fright. But how did you get over your stage fright or how do you get over? Because on stage, you're a force. Well, it's definitely a process. Um, the first breakthrough was when Metric was first playing as the four piece. I was sitting behind a huge piano and I actually I keep wanting to I got to get the team to find the footage of us at the Mercury Lounge, the band called it Bobby because it was, I refused to play like a stupid keyboard. You know, it's different to play a synth, which is the Pro One that I always played. But for a piano, it needed to be like a heavy, big instrument. So I sat at the front of the stage. That was, that was it. 
And so the piano was kind of your armor. For sure. And it and I was not a dynamic performer at all. I was just sitting there playing the piano. Over time, I, you know, I was like, well, maybe I'll stand up and play the keyboard or maybe. And then there was this breakthrough moment in um, Santa Monica. We were playing um, some terrible place. I mean, these, the thing is, you laugh. It's the best memories, like the worst times are the best memories. But absolutely, you know, doing the wrong, you know, it was like a khaki shorts kind of crowd. It wasn't there was no connection of why, what is our music? Our identity is not clear. We haven't found our people. We don't, we're not sure. They're not sure. It's just all kind of a mixed bag. And I found on the way to this gig, like in the trash, in the alley behind the venue, um, like a mannequin torso. And I brought it up on stage. And at one point I threw it into the audience, which is generous to call it an audience. You know, it's like some people having some drinks after work basically, and then jumped off the stage and basically did like a ill-advised floor routine with the torso. This is, this is metric lore because it was, my band was like, that was the moment where I was like, I have to break through everything. And our good fortune was that, God, what was that guy's name from? He did a night at the Silver Lake Lounge and his name comes and goes. It's so, so long ago, but he was there and was like, oh, you got to come and play, do a residency at the Silver Lake Lounge. And then we found our vibe and our people. It was small, but it was the right kind of venue for us. And that's where everything launched in LA. But that's how I first got over the stage fright, honestly. And then from there, I just started like jumping off speaker stacks and, you know, being reckless. But <laughs> do you think of that as taking a different persona when you're on stage or do you consider it? No, that's, that's me. That's Emily. That's just another part of me. And it's, and it's very natural now. No, it's me. Yeah. It's not a persona. Okay. Well, that's really interesting. Mannequins on stage. <laughs> it was so bad. There for all of you musicians out there, there's a, there's a tip to get over your stage fright. Okay. So we're going to take another break and then we're going to be back. We're going to get into one of the great songs from the new album, Formentera, Doom Scroller. So we'll be right back with Emily Haynes. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! <laughs> what would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. <laughs> Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. All right. Lots of ground to cover still, Emily. Right on. So we're going to go through Doom Scroller. You were talking a little bit about your feelings about, um, and you're very open and candid about it. Uh, and you write a lot, by the way, uh, because I'm on your mailing list, and you write very openly about your thoughts as you go through the process and even through COVID and what you were dealing with at the time. And you have always been very proactive and kind of forward thinking when it comes to how you engage with your audience. And blogging is just one part of it, but you've done some really interesting things early on in your careers where you made um, stems from certain songs available to the audience to create on top of that. Formentera is a very different sound than um, several of your albums. And starting off with Doomscroller, a hell of a way to lead off an album with a 10 plus minute song that really seems to go into two parts, but it's a type of sound that I've never heard before with Metric. So tell us about it, how it came to be, how you chose that to be the lead track on your album. It's interesting you say that you feel like you haven't heard us do that before because this is certainly the most developed. But if you listen back to Old World Underground, our first album, you yeah. know, 20 years ago, that first song, IOU, you know, we're, we're changing genres within the first like 30 seconds. And then yeah, I'm singing about an enemy soldier. And, you know, the genres are, I, I feel from the, and I'm not saying this defensively, I, I love the conversation, yeah. but it's like, I feel like 
the thing that we've established early on is that we will always be changing. No question about it. I, I know that song in the first album. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And when I listen back, I almost feel like that's the that's the starter piece 20 years ago that allowed us to develop, you know, in songs like Empty even. But Doom Scroller is definitely like our our major accomplishment, I feel, as musicians in being able to execute something on that scale. And to me, intriguingly, it wasn't a conceptual, it didn't come from a conceptual place. It's very nose to the grindstone um, approach where uh, Jimmy and Liam had created, Liam's an amazing musician that we work with. He plays with Kings of Leon, Um, but he came up and was spending time with us and they do all this modular synthesis stuff that really is on another level. I mean, you're taking core sonic, you know, I, I find it like pure poetry. These guys are manipulating pure sonics like on a cellular level you know it's not like sitting around with a keyboard this is patch bays and it's really cool fascinating stuff to me like how they can translate an emotion into this like sort of otherworldly sound um and they're very connected to the to the writing and to to what i'm saying when they create this stuff so they but they had made this piece that is the beginning of the song the sort of like trolls uh, section, as Pirellis put it, which I thought was so great. Um, but I, I had this experience with that piece of music where I, I listened to it and I just heard the whole lining up all the numbers under the names. I was like, I hear, I hear the whole thing. I hear all the lyrics and the melody and the, the everything is in front of me. And they were coming into the studio that day, which was at my house. And I was like, guys, just set up the mic and don't say anything. <laughs> And pull up that song and let me just put that down. And that is the vocal that is on the album that starts the album. You know, this was in like April 2020. So this is essentially in the first take, you had just come up with those lyrics to the song. Did you have them in your head or did you write them down as soon as you got them into your head? It is. It is the first take. Um, But yeah, no, I had I wrote them down. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I just recently was reading that in the Lisa Robinson book that. Jay-Z like doesn't write anything down. I was that was blew my mind. Um, because I the feeling of the flow happens to be but I I've never had it. I don't think where anyway, separate conversation. But this like it was very clear. I wrote it down, I walked down with a piece of paper, and I sang that. And they were both like, what, you know, what the hell? So then we're like, whoa, what it what is this? Um, the uh 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 all of it, the QAnon, all the stuff was just like so clear so we were like okay we gotta let's rein this in this is this is amazing and it's gonna be you know a song it's gonna be that song but then I said look I feel like we need to end this with we need to come to an organic place we need to end this with a piano little like sort of outro so I wrote something and Jimmy was like that's amazing we need to develop that so that piano segment became this whole experience, you know, either way we're gonna love you. Um, and the, all those ambient sounds that accompany that. And then we were like, oh, wow, now that now I feel soothed by what I just went through the anxiety at the beginning. But I got now that we got to go somewhere else still just ground level, you know, uh, riding the emotion through. And that's when Jimmy's like, I hear it, you know, breaks out the guitars and creates this like huge kind of like almost Brit pop euphoric, you know, guitar moment, like what is rock, you know? And then we were like, whew, okay, there, okay. That, that's now we've, we've expressed what we were trying to express and oh no, what are we going to do? It's 10 and a half minutes. Um. <laughs> and you let it go, which is amazing that you did. Again, very organic that you did that, that you didn't try to fit within the rules of the game um, that others may dictate. But Doom Scroller, obviously, is very dark at the beginning. And then you said it opens up euphorically. Does that describe the state of your mind? That you, there's all these forces in the world and many of them are, are extremely challenging at this point, but ultimately you feel hopeful I mean, I feel like I need to make myself useful. That's the that's the way I would frame it. And I'm not useful if I can't function. And I'm not useful if I'm creating something that just makes people feel incapacitated. So, you know, and it's sort of like, 
a little bit like Help I'm Alive. It's almost like a manifestation and it's addressed in the lyrics of that, the piano section of that song of the, you know, the idea of taking something for the pain to soothe it, but it's not to conceal it, it's to magnify it. So in that way, you know, I'm not like, hey, everybody come listen to the metric record and get super depressed. It's not, it's not a valuable offering. And our whole, we're obsessed with functionality. Like that's why I feel like we're still here eight albums in is we actually serve a purpose for people. Like you need to get through something like we can actually help you with that, you know? So to that extent, you know, I feel like I kind of owe it to myself and people who love me and people I love um, and people who listen to our music to find like, to recognize that things are, I mean, it's bad, <laughs> right? And and not gloss over it. It's not great. It's not great. <laughs> and to not gloss over those things, but try to help people articulate it, try to help people like get some sort of frame of reference for what they're feeling. Cause I think like the mental health moment we're in is just, it's, it's really hard to find your footing. Um, so I don't know. I, I can't, I don't think I can go on record and say I'm optimistic, but I, but I feel like I owe it to people to find the energy, motivate and keep going. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's a great way to describe it. And so given everything that you just mentioned going into the studio this time, Choosing the name Formentera, and um, was there a theme and a reason why you did lay that out? Also, just kind of the headspace of we had our last album, which is a great rocking album, and then you go into the studio with Formentera. What was in your minds of what you wanted to shape, if anything, or if it was just purely organic, and then the title and what it means to you? Yeah, I mean, I think on again on the sort of usefulness tip, you know, there's no ignoring that we were in a pandemic. Um, lockdowns in Canada were really intense. Um, winter, I think, exacerbated things for a lot of people in terms of, again, the mental health component. Um, you know, my band could not get across the border. Josh and Jules both live in the U.S. They couldn't cross the border for a year, which I, when I hear myself say that, I just want to burst into tears. Um, so we were already in kind of like war footing of like, you know, and I know you talk to so many musicians. I mean, the, and it's still up for grabs of like, who's going to survive this as far as musicians go. The completely transformed touring landscape, everything is a complete, it's like the, it's like the economy, you know, uh, at large is reflected. Oftentimes I feel like it's like canary in the coal mine in the music industry, you know, um, the reality. And we felt it from the minute that we're all sheltering in place that it's like, this, this is never going to be the same. And so we really went into on this album, like survival mode of like, we are going to deliver the finest, finest work we can possibly muster and cling like by our fingernails to the career that we've built and hope that between streaming venues, tickets, illnesses, monkeypox, inflation, <laughs> you know, that we're going to be able to prevail here, but it is not a guarantee. So that was definitely the feeling. Um, and you know, which is not new, like we're a hardworking band, but especially cause we couldn't get Josh and Jules up. We were like, we got to re reconfigure. We moved our studio from the city. We built a whole new studio and a renovated church, huge project, huge undertaking. Also terrifying. I was like, hope this works. Hope it sounds good. Did you buy a church? Yes. Okay. Yeah. We don't have time to dig into that, but we got to visit that church. You do. It's beautiful. And Jimmy, I mean, what he did to make it sound the way it sounds, all the drums that you hear on the record are Jules playing in the apps where the priest would be. Incredible undertaking and terrifying yeah. for me because it was like, I know, let's pour every remaining penny of our organization into making this, building a studio, like doubling, doubling, doubling down, right? Um, but so, you know, a couple of years into this where we were all f thinking a few months or, you know, the wiser among us knew it would be longer, but I was not wise. I was naive. I thought it was going to be short and, you know, second, third thousandth winter, it felt like we're in the studio and it was, we were definitely kind of crawling up the walls. It's me and Jimmy and Liam. It's been years. <laughs> we're like growing beards, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so I had this book that's like a dream destinations kind of book, like paradise, you know, holiday places to go. And I was like, guys, we need to like transport Let's maybe every day we'll look at a new place and picture that we're there. Like we need something. So we turned to 
Formentera, um, which is a place I have had the privilege of going and look forward to going to again. It's a gorgeous island off Ibiza, kind of different tone from Ibiza, but geographically just stunning. Um, and we thought we would change pages, but we never did. That page opened. Um, and it was one of those moments. I, I went to the piano, da, 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 started playing that melody. Da, 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 da. Jimmy and Liam are doing the thing where they're pulling organic sounds out of nothing and patching things and generating this atmosphere. Um, and then that, that song just kind of came into existence. Um, and then much like help I'm alive, it, we finished it. It was, it was beautiful, but we had a lot of other work and we just kind of kept going and we didn't, we weren't aware of its significance for a while until we were kind of reckoning with what was going to be on this album. And everyone had a kind of like weird psychic consensus where I got a phone call from like my artwork guy, Justin being like, Formentera is the name of the album and that's the thing and that's the cover and that's the thing. And Jimmy's like, Formentera, like we all, it was very weird. Um, and then classic Jimmy, he's like, I know what we need. We need an orchestra to take us in. We need an orchestra to connect with enemies of the ocean and ride us through and make this like piece in, that is the centerpiece of the album. Call up Todor Kobakov, our Bulgarian composer friend. He gets the Budapest Orchestra. We do a live cast thing um, with them where they record it. And I'm just sitting there stunned at my good fortune of the people that I work with. Um, and that's, that's how we land with that as the heart. And then the general shape of the album, which you experience when you listen to it in sequence, which you should, is the tension at the beginning. You're led into Formentera. It's like an escape in your mind as it was for us. You know, the physical place was not available, but you can just go Formentera, man, it's out of my control. I'm going to my island in my mind. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) And by the way, I've listened to the album over and over again from start to finish. And no question, everybody out there, I urge you to do it that way. It is a great album. Uh, just finishing up that thought. Okay, you start with the doom, and then you get into this beautiful place. So how do you resolve things at the end? How do you end the journey? Uh, well, Paths in the Sky um, is the last track on the record. And we kind of just like party through the end of the record, you know? Oh, please, I'll, you know, false dichotomy. All this is like... It's, you're getting some classic metric sonics um, and attitude, uh, which I think is it's kind of like shake it off, you know. Um, but Pads in the Sky is is uh, a super uh, sentimental song for me because, you know, I talk about this all the time, but I just I really think like romantic love songs are overrated. I don't think I think romantic love is great. I've been in love. I am in love. But I think for the, for the purpose of like what music serves, where you have a room full of people like uniting, you know, like trying to have this like euphoric thing. It's like, oh yeah, that guy really loves his wife. Like, I just don't, <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's just not the same as friendship, as a yeah. love of those people. It's so deep where you like look around and you're like, man, these are my people. And obviously this is from someone who's living an alternative lifestyle by being in a band. So I'm living like as a team, I'm like on a soccer team, basically, you know, (laughs) like, and I take it really seriously. But so Pads in the Sky is, um, you know, really an ode to that French, that, that, that friendship and the feeling of time just being like, damn it, life is good. It's beautiful. It's slipping by. There's nothing we can do hold on, you know, to the people that you love. It's, it's really sentimental, but that visual at the, in the first verse of like, you know, in your ragged coat, you know, you meet him in the, in the back of the bar in the basement. I can just picture this place in New York where, you know, I would meet my best friend and just those times where you just see that person and they're like, what's up, you know, I'll be there for you. That that's the stuff that gives me shivers. And that, that relationship is what I feel like we have with, our audience, when people come to our shows, it's like, man, we're still here. Or people who have just discovered us, they're like, no way, you know. That um, it really is like a friendship um, that I feel with the audience more than like a fandom thing. It's like we're each other's people, you know. So that song is the note we leave it on. There's another song that really um, has that kind of impact, at least when I was seeing you and in the audience. And there are many, but one in particular that really sticks out. 
Give Me Sympathy mm-hmm. uh, and the acoustic version of that. When you sit on stage and you just have the guitar and you're playing that and singing that and everybody has their lights out, you know, their phones out. That's a beautiful song that kind of gets the effect that you were just describing, at least as me as the listener. It's very much a communal escape. You're in the moment at the time. So I get what you're talking about. Very cool. So on tour, how do you feel about being on tour again? Terrified, um, but motivated. That's my word. Um, we're going to, we're going to make it work. The tour is going to be amazing. Tickets are selling great. Um, this, the, we're, Got all the production. We're on it. We're in production rehearsals right now. We're going to give people the best possible show. But I'm scared of how the world has changed. Yeah, this is the first time you're touring in three years. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Okay. And then musically, you do metric, of course, is your day job. But you also have your solo stuff. You have Emily Haynes and Soft Skeleton. You have Broken Social Scene. So how do you decide what, what is what? Um, I feel like increasingly as, and again, as we were describing this kind of climate we're in, where there is the sense of us all kind of clinging to the edge of the ship that hopefully isn't sinking. Um, but you know, it's metric, right? I mean, in the past, um, you know, the, the solo albums have been when I have personal stuff that I'm processing, um, that I just basically deal with in code, um, on those albums, you know, like choir of the mind, um, was a really great opportunity for me to, do an unusual performance and process a bunch of crazy ass shit that was happening. But, uh, you know, and social scene at this point is very much, it's just really more like a friendship and it's more in the past. Um, I love those guys forever, but that's not, that's not a current project, you know? So right now it's all in on, on metric. What's your favorite song that you wrote? Ah, come on. That's like, which of your children do you love best? (laughs) Gotta do it. I gotta ask the question. I mean, right now it, it is doom scroller because of the nature of the ambition and the accomplishment of it and the insanity of how it got actually finished, which, you know, we didn't even get a chance to touch on, but Stuart White, who is Beyonce's guy, Jimmy had met casually in LA at one point and on a complete, you know, chance, Hail Mary reached out and was like, Hey, is there a possibility that you might want to mix a couple songs on this record? And he mixed All Comes Crashing which is number one in Canada right now. Um, it was number one. For you. Yeah, thank you. And then it dropped and then it went back up. So we're like, yeah, didn't know that could happen. Um, but so Stuart White uh, mixed All Comes Crashing and um, Doom Scroller. And I feel like, you know, took things to another whole level. So Doom Scroller is, is, is it right now. But honestly, ask me every year and it'll probably be a different answer. <laughs> and what's the, what's the song that you wish you wrote? Probably Perfect Day. Perfect Day. Uh, Velvet Underground, Lou Reed. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and actually, I got to perform that with Lou. And when I was practicing it in um, Sydney, we did this event at Sydney Opera House. He and Lori invited me to do, and Todor Kobakov playing piano. I'm uh, And I'm singing it. And he's like, Emily, <laughs> it's not a picnic. You know, you got to bring some, and I, it's just so, you know, I feel like I got substance, I got soul, but man, I was like, damn, that is a good insight. Like, you got to be careful. It's not like, yeah, I drank sangria in the park, like texted my friends. Like, that is not the tone, man. Like, you got to get a little deeper. And I was like, whoa, I'm going to, I'm going to find some darkness for Lou there because that's, it's not a picnic in Central Park. <laughs> what, what an experience that great? That had there, I would imagine. Yeah, it is. <laughs> What was it like to tour with the Stones? Okay, we did two nights at Madison Square Garden. So it wasn't a tour. It was two nights. Okay. We were the only opener. And it was one of those, you know, you stick around long enough, you get enough of these stories. But early in the career, we were on um, Live It Out with yeah. the album. And we we played two nights at Madison Square Garden and in between played Monster Hospital on Conan O'Brien. Um, so it was just like a New York dream. We took the subway to MSG. And, That's cool. you know, I, we have a great picture of, of all of us, which I should send you, um, you know, with, uh, with the guys, with Keith, like fully, you know, rock it out. Yeah. And, uh, I'm just, my face is just like, I'm just trying to have as much attitude as possible. 
but terrified. And I remember we played Monster Hospital, you know, which is references Bobby Fuller and all this stuff. And, you know, I fought the war, but the war won is the lyric. And I remember someone who was certainly a, perhaps a Vietnam vet or something. He's like, I fought the war. Like, <laughs> you did. Yeah, exactly. I did. Like, he's yeah. like, oh, I was yeah. like, oh, I'm going to get off the stage now. You know, super intimidating, but they were very gracious to us. If you didn't become an artist or musician, what would you be doing? Uh, I'd probably have like a high end retreat. Like I'd have like the finest hotels available to humanity. Um, that's, that's not bad. I like hosting. I'm kind of a host. Like, I feel like when I'm on stage, I'm hosting when I'm writing, you know, I'm just like, come on in. I like making people feel good (laughs) for everybody out there. Who's a musician that you believe they should know and be checking out? Well, I feel like I have to say my friends in the band Stars, um, they just made an amazing record. And I think it's tragic that people aren't really hearing it. So go listen to Stars. Okay. I'll check it out too. Listen, Emily, wonderful to see you. I appreciate it. And it was great digging into the story behind the song. Everybody go out there, check out the album Formentera, go see them on tour. First time in three years, I'll be seeing the band in San Diego at the, at the observatory in North park, which is a great venue by the way. And, um, good luck with everything. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see where the journey takes you from here. That's right. And, uh, I really appreciate the insightful conversation. This is, I'm fired up to go uh, rehearse for this tour now. Thanks, Emily. Great to see you. Thank you. That was Emily Haynes of Metric sharing her story behind the band's breakout confessional hit, Help I'm Alive. I'm your host, Peter Chotti. You can follow me on Twitter at pchotti. That's P as in Peter, C as in cat, S is in Sam, A like Apple, T is in Tom, H like Harry, Y like Yellow. And follow me at Creative Media, which is creativemedia.biz. For more of the story beyond the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes. Also, make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network and as always thanks for listening to the story behind the song